Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu to all the returning viewers and those that are listening for the first time. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. You know, we start in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, always. And uh, inshallah, we will, today we'll be looking at the first introduction to the fiqh book Al-Quduri. In my last podcast, I talked about Ijazah. And I gave a bit of a rationale about why I'm doing this. Again, just to kind of clarify why I'm doing this. The reason is I was given ijazah by Sheikh Usman Tahir, based in Birmingham, about 15 years ago, to go ahead and teach Kaduri. Um, Unfortunately, I fell short of my obligations, and I haven't done that. And thinking about my lifestyle, you know, my profession what I do for a living, it's time that I gave something back. And I thought the best way that I can go ahead and do this is do what I was supposed to have done 15 years ago and actually teach um, Al-Quduri. So that's the rationale. I talked about when you were given a jaza, there's a sense of responsibility and that responsibility is for you to go ahead and relay that message, that knowledge back to the community, the Ummah in general. In this book, I would try not to deviate from what is actually written in the book itself. I would try to keep that wherever I do deviate, I will make sure that I tell you it's my opinion. And an opinion is just that. It is my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. You can dispute it. You can reject it. Nothing that I do here is off myself. I do for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so I can help and fulfill my obligation that I that was given to me. Um, and make sure that I do right by what was told, what I was told. So this book is in is basically the book which I refer to, and what I live by, and it's for the Hanafi fiqh, the rulings of it. And in the introduction, it states the term fiqh literally means understanding, comprehension, and knowledge, and technically refers to knowledge of a derivative Sharia rulings, along with the evidence for them with details both of the rulings and their evidence composed, codified from four recognized sources. Number one being the glorious Quran itself. Number two, the noble Sunnah. Number three, consensus, which is referred to as Ijma. And number four, analogy, which is referred to as Qiyas in the book. Or Qiyas, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Where explicit evidence is not found in the Holy Quran, it is sought in the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wa wasallam, and if it's not there, then the agreement of the Muslims in general, and in particular the knowledgeable known as ijma. If these three options do not bring a result, then the final recourse, known as qiyas, is the return back to the Quran and Sunnah for similar examples that can be applied to new issues. The question of how consensus and analogy are arrived from the two primary sources indicated above. In a hadith of the generous Prophet Nabi Sallallahu the Messenger of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala dispatched Muadi bin Jabbal to Yemen and asked him how he would adjudicate. To which he replied, "With the Book of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala." The Messenger of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala asked, "What if you do not find the rulings?" He replied, with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Taala. The Messenger of Allah Taala then asked, what if you do not find 
the rulings there either. And he replied, I shall practice my reasoning. An exceptionally important factor that reasoning, and reasoning refers to something of the mind, is part of our deen in what was revealed in this book and in the Hadith. This is uh, Intermediate Volume 1. It's important to understand that we are permitted to use the akul that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. And akul refers to our mind. It's important that we do utilize it. It's important that we do we use the knowledge that we have received to approach Islam as well. Now, with that comes responsibility. It's one thing to adjudicate between two individuals or a group of individuals when you are in a position to do that. And in this case, the Sahabi that was asked to go to Yemen, he was in a position because he actually had a teacher and that teacher was the Prophet Muhammad himself. But if you don't have knowledge and you're not in a position where you can actually adjudicate, it's best for you to step aside. And a lot of the time that we see in this society now, people want to adjudicate, want to lead, they're not qualified to lead. And this is why it was so important, the view that I shared with you on Ijazah. It comes to mind where if I feel that I'm not qualified to do something and there are individuals who are more qualified, it's harder in today's society to say, no, please go to someone else. Because there's an inner, inner voice inside us that says, no, we want to be seen as leaders. And honestly, as someone who's been in a leadership position for the last 10 years now, in a professional capacity outside of Islam, I can tell you it's one of the hardest things to do and it's one of the least rewarding things you will ever do in your life. But yet everyone seeks it because it's glamorous, it's it's romanticized, and it's in reality it isn't. It's, it's burdensome and, and there's lack of appreciation, but you'll have the stress of it, which is unrewarded in its own right, very poorly compensated for what it is, but yet everyone wants to seek it. And only people who have actually been in leadership positions, people who have been in professional careers like myself, leading FTSE 100 businesses through IPOs and listing them on, on the US Stock Exchange, for example, something that I've done in, in the last couple of years now, it's, it's not rewarding. And, and again, even in that, even in my professional career, everyone wants to be a leader, but they're not qualified to be a leader. And in Islam, I see the exact same thing. But the difference is, it doesn't matter if you make a mistake in dunya, in a, in a professional capacity. And obviously, there's caveats to that. But what I, the point that I'm trying to make is, the mistakes that you make seeking leadership positions to adjudicate or create rulings or fatwas or go ahead and preach, etc. When you're not qualified, you're misleading someone. The consequences are of that can be catastrophic for the person that you mislead and also for yourself, right? Because you will share in their, their sins because you misled them. So is it worth it? Is it worth you going ahead and trying to lead or try to be in a position of leadership when, when you're not going to get rewarded for it? In essence, if you're not qualified, sorry to say, I mean, that's a caveat. If you're not qualified and you haven't been given uh, ijazah or you haven't been properly trained uh, and you know you haven't been properly trained and being self-trained is not the same as being trained because it's amazing what you learn from learned people it's amazing what you learn from learned people because you're not just learning the textbooks you're not just learning the fic you're not just learning the uh, the rulings you're learning from the experiences and that's unmeasurable and I can honestly tell you that because I 
or in the position that I've been, I'm experiencing a very, very niche area of finance. And I know for a fact that what are the experiences that I've had, most people would never have in a lifetime because just do not occur in the open world that often, right? They do not occur in the open world that often. That's why it's limited. And that's why people seek my, my employment or my expertise in the open world in dunya. And I've, I've had recent experience of individuals who are a lot senior than myself thinking they knew what they were talking about until they had to do it and I had to correct them. And even though they're 20 years my senior, absolutely gobsmacked by the fact that they didn't know that. And that's what it is because you cannot put a price on experience. And when you learn from your teachers, that's what you're getting. You're getting the benefit of their experience. If you're 30 years old and there's someone who's a professional who's done it for 40 years, you've only done it for 10 years, you're getting their 30 years worth of experience. That's what you're getting. That's the rationale why having a teacher is important because they would have been through scenarios which you have not experienced through your life. There's a lot of young individuals now talking about marriage when they're 18 years old and they haven't got married. They haven't been married. Yes, they know book smart. They probably have studied it and they have studied it for a few years. When I was learning, we had young kids at the age of 11 and 10 years old and 11 years learning. So those kids have now grown up 15 years later. They're 26, 27 years old. They've got good book knowledge, but they haven't experienced marriage firsthand and, the, and some of the nuances that exist within marriage. As just as an example, you know, stemming away from uh, the big book and that the last part of it, what I'm discussing now is just my opinion. Uh, and again, I said I'll make a distinction between that between the two. But it's important to understand that having a teacher and having and learning through someone who's experienced, who has qualified experience, to go ahead and teach is is an exceptionally important point purely because you're not just getting the book smarts, you're actually getting the benefit of their experience. And I hope, inshallah, some of this, when we go into some of the specifics of fiqh in this book, in Kaduri, I can share some of my experience with you. And most of them will come from either my own personal experience, and I would try to make a distinction between my opinion and, and what the actual book quotes. So the very first part, or the very, very, very first section we're going to go ahead and cover is purification. Kitabul Tahara, which is covering wudu. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exalted his he said, You who have iman, when you get up to do salah, wash your faces and your hands and your arms to the elbows and wipe over your heads and wash your feet to the ankles. The Surah al maida Wudu is an exceptionally important part of salah and obviously with it comes a few rulings. Now, from the book itself, the obligation, and that's the fard of wudu, the purification, the washing of the three limbs, and wiping the head. And some people call this masa, so it doesn't mean that you cover it completely, but you wipe over your head. And there will obviously be different opinions, and take the opinions of whichever imam you follow. But in this book, for the Hanafi fiqh, it's masa, the wiping of the head. It goes on further to say the elbows and the ankles comprising the obligation of washing. So the elbows and the ankles have to be washed according to our three ulama 
And that's contrary to the opinion of Zafar, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon him. The prescribed obligation in wiping the head is the extent of the forelock, that is the first quarter of the head, according to what, sorry, according to what Al-Muhara ibn Shubah reported, that the Prophet Muhammad arrived at the camp of the tribe and passed water. Then he performed wudu. He wiped, he wiped over the forelock and his qafs, and that's in, that can be that hadith can be found in Sahih Muslim, uh, Sahih Ahmad, Abu Dawood, and others. That covers the fard of wudu. So the fard is the obligate obligatory part of the body that needs to be washed. And again, that is three limbs: the wiping, muscle of the head, the elbows, and the ankles. That's the opinion of the Hanafi fiqh. Now, moving on to the sunnahs of purification. So this is sunnah which should be done in wudu. In kuduri, it goes on to say the washing of both hands thrice before entering them into the pot. So washing of the hands when the person performing wudu wakes up from sleep. Mentioning the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the commencement, commencement of wudu is sunnah, right? It's not, it's not a fart. Using the tooth stick. So this is the mushwak. It's sunnah to use it but not an obligation rinsing the mouth sunnah rinsing the nose sunnah wiping both ears sunnah combing the beard with wet fingers sunnah combing the fingers of each hand with the wet fingers of the opposite hand it's difficult through a podcast to go ahead and show you and demonstrate that you'll see some people in the masjid they will put one hand above the other and they will wash in between their hands and that's what it's referring to and repetition of the washing up to three times is a sunnah according to the Hanafi fiqh well, I hope that gives you the distinction between the obligations and I just want to go ahead and say that again the obligations are washing the limbs wiping wiping the head the elbows and the ankles part of the fard of wudu and the sunnah as I mentioned in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala using the tooth stick rinsing the mouth rinsing the nose Wiping both ears, combing the beard with wet fingers, combing the fingers of each hand with the wet fingers of the opposite hand and repeating it three times. Now we move on to matters that are recommended in wudu. It is recommended for the person making wudu that he intends for purification, so make an intention. These are recommended acts. They're not part of the sunnah, they're not part of the fard, but it's a recommended act. He intends or she intends to make niyat. He or she covers the entire head with wiping. So remember we said it's for, for the front forelock. According to the Prophet and what was observed and what's in the hadith. But it's recommended. He or she performs wudu in order and commences with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned first. So in order that was given to us by the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, He or she commences with the right limbs first. Right? Remember, it's important. If you're left-handed, it's important to understand that we try to use and wash our right hand first before we wash our left hand. If you're going to go and wash your feet, make sure you try to wash your right foot first before you wash your left foot. And again, these are recommended. I have to emphasize this, right? So if anyone takes any of this, they understand the difference between a fard, which is an obligation, it must be done, a sunnah, which is You'll get sawab because the Prophet Nabi did it and it's recommended you do it. And these recommendations are additions. 
if missed out, it doesn't invalidate you would do. Okay, so understand it does not invalidate you would do. And the final one, the recommended is he or she wipes the neck, right? And the neck is a very, very interesting point because I saw a video recently whereby a very renowned sheikh said it's bidda, right? Now, bidda is an interesting word and I don't want to get into it, but in the book, one that we are studying right now, in this book, it's recommended, right? So it's not a sunnah and it's not a fud. So you, in your own capacity, need to make a decision if you consider that bidda. If you consider that bidda, now you know, even if you followed the Hanafi fiqh and you saw that opinion of a sheikh online that said it's bidda, at least you know that if you do leave it, it's not going to invalidate your wudu. But if you do do it, it's a recommendation through the Hanafi Fiqh and therefore you have a opinion that you can go ahead and do it if you do not follow a particular opinion, for example, of that Sheikh. I'm not going to mention any names because it's, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. But what I, at least you have a point of source now why you are doing what you're doing. And that's the most important thing. Now, going back to the book itself, that which nullifies wudu or that exits from the two passages Two passages meaning down there, right? You know, you you defecate or you urinate. So let's just kind of be kind of clear. In the book, they give an example. These passages are excreted urine and feces, right? Without actually going into more detail, I think it's self-explanatory. It's urine or feces, right? Natural behavior. But if you do any of those, it invalidates or nullifies your wudu, meaning that you have to go ahead and redo your wudu. Blood, pus, or serum, such that when they exit from the body, the flow to a place that is subject to the rule of purification. All right, I want to clarify this. This is the reason why we study with a teacher. When I was learning this, there was a very specific example given. One, if it does not flow, right? If blood does not flow, i.e., it comes out a bit, but it does not flow down or trickle down, then it does not nullify your wudu, right? Second thing, when we talk about blood, the example that my teacher gave to me was a 2P coin. Even if the blood doesn't flow, but it comes out and it stays stable on your skin, but it's the size of a 2P coin, and that's a UK terminology, so Google what the size of a, a 2 pence coin in the UK is, then if you see blood that size, then it does nullify, even though it might not flow, even though it might be stable on your skin and it does not flow. If you're lying down, it's on your chest for argument six and you have a small cut, just giving you an example, and it comes out, but it doesn't flow down because you're lying down and it's not against gravity, but it's the size of a 2P coin, it does nullify your wudu. Vomit, when it is a mouthful, Understand that you can have small vomit that comes out. It might be a knee-jerk reaction or a a reaction by your body, but it does not nullify your wudu if it's not a mouthful, and it means a mouthful. So a very key distinction. A lot of people will tell you vomit, full stop, and that's it, and therefore you nullified your wudu. No, that's not the case. The case is if it is a mouthful. Sleep. Sleeping such that if a person is lying down, reclining or leaning on something, 
if it was removed, a person will fall down. In the example that when I was studying Wudu and I was studying Fiqh with my teacher, he gave me a good example. If you lie down and you push your legs straight out and your, your backside is on the ground, so you can't pass wind. I should be kind of a bit more selective on the words that I use. You can't pass wind. It's difficult. And you sleep in that state, you do not break your wudu. It does not nullify your wudu. However, if you were to sleep and you were to go onto your side, either side, doesn't matter. If you were to go on your side, such that the passageway to pass wind is open and it's easy without your kind of forcing it out, then it does nullify your wudu if you fall asleep in that uh, position. So the two different positions. If you lie down, straight, straight legs, and your backside is pressed against the floor, a chair, etc., whatever, that it's difficult for you to pass wind involuntarily. It does not nullify your wudu if you go to sleep. However, if you were to be on either side or in a position which is very easy for you to pass wind involuntary without even knowing, if you fall asleep in that state, then it does nullify uh, your wudu. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that you benefit from it. I want to stop here just on wudu because I will want to create a different one for ghusl. The next subject that we will cover is going to be ghusl, but I want a separate, I want a separate podcast for that. And the rationale for that is purely because if you go back to something, I want you to have small bite-sized um, narrations from the book that you can refer to. But I hope, inshallah, that it does help you. This book is available. Anything that I say here can be found online or by purchasing the book. I'm not advocating that you purchase the book. I'm not, I won't get paid for it. The, per, the reason why I'm doing it is that you get a bit of a better insight for someone who has Ijazah to go ahead and teach this. And then subsequently, if you do buy the book, you have a point of reference that you come back to and just get that bit more detail than what the book, books provide. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.